Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Um, welcome to CSIS. And I'm uh, happy to be here today to talk about careers and development. I'm Johanna Nusseth. Um, I'm actually substituting for Bill Garvelink, uh, who normally runs the series. But I am a senior associate at CSIS. I started our, our program on food security and global development here. So it's a real treat to, and I got to know Paul over the past three years. And it's a real treat to be here with him. So what we're going to do today, we are going to go around the room, do a quick round of introductions so Paul knows who is in the room. And then he's going to talk about his career path and what he's learned and give some advice um, for all of you for a little bit. And then we'll open up to questions and answers. Before we do introductions, though, I do want to take a moment to recognize that this is September 11th. Um, I think as we. As I look around the room, most of you were probably very young on September 11th of 2001, but I actually was at CSIS that morning in a meeting when we got word that the planes, the second plane had hit um, the World Trade Towers, and it was an absolutely devastating, devastating time um, to watch the Pentagon burn and smolder for weeks on end and to hear about the many, many deaths was it was just one of the saddest, darkest times that I have remembered in my life, so I just want to make sure that we don't let today pass without acknowledging that. I do think that one of the things <coughs> that has grown out of the concern about terrorism and the, the feeling that there's a direct threat has been that development really, really took an uptick. The combination of the uh, HIV-AIDS epidemic and the recognition about root cause and poverty and its impact on national security has fundamentally changed the foreign policy landscape over the past decade and a half. Um, and so I think it is a really, we are very, very fortunate to have the opportunity to, to live at this time and to think about how development and poverty reduction can actually promote longer, broad, broader foreign policy and security goals. Um, food security is probably my favorite topic in the world, um, and it wasn't very popular for a very long time. I was at CSIS for about 10 years before I even let people know that I had any kind of agricultural background. It wasn't popular. It wasn't cool. It wasn't something you talked about in a big, fat defense think tank that talks about uh, armed services and military options all the time. But suddenly, as of 2008, it became something that we talked about. And, at, and it was very, I think it was uh, very, very fortunate timing because there was a cadre of people who had been working in food and agriculture their entire careers, and that cadre was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And a lot of those folks have retired, but there are still a few people who have continued to be active, and that's why we're so lucky to talk with Paul, because Paul was doing agriculture when it was cool, and then for a long time when it wasn't really cool. And now, again, when it is cool again, he's bringing back a lot of lessons when people are saying, hey, what's this agriculture stuff? What's this food security stuff? And sort of, in some ways, reinventing the wheel, <clears throat> but also opening up just whole new ways of thinking about it. So someone like Paul is a very rare gem because he actually has a lifetime of experience working in many different countries, many different settings, and understanding Truly, how do you look at smallholder farmers and people operating on tiny, tiny plots of land, and how do you actually try to move them into a broader system of trade and, and marketing? 
Um, and I think he knows something that, that I think is so important. He knows the importance of aggregating farmers, of training farmers, of extension education, uh, and, and just working across a whole chain of impacts to improve uh, food security and reduce poverty. So I'm not going to give much about Paul's background because I think he's going to go through some of his career history. But he did, as I recall, he grew up on a dairy farm. My father had some cows that cows he milked. Cows that he milked. Yeah. So that's probably where he got started. I think there were only 20 or so. Close enough. You, you smelled manure. Yeah, as yeah. You, yeah, so good enough. Um, so I'm really pleased to introduce Paul Gannett. Um, I also actually have gotten to know Paul over the past three years because we both serve on a, an advisory committee looking at the future of food and ag policy. So we represent the sort of international um, wing of that group. And uh, I can also just let you know that Paul is probably one of the nicest, funnest people you're going to ever meet. So we're really lucky to have him with us today. So why don't we do a quick round of introductions, and then we'll turn to you. probably mentioned I actually have a day job as well. So I'm with Chevron currently working on our economic development activities, um, which surprisingly include quite a bit of agriculture for an energy company. Um, so with that, Paul, take it away. Let's hear about your life. All right. Uh, well, I, first of all, I'm, I'm a Michigan boy. And I, I, I would like a show of hands. Anybody else from the Midwestern US? It's, a, it's not a bad thing. OK. Um, I was a liberal arts bachelor, bachelor of arts, theater arts major, another thing that I, I, I hid for years, um, <laughs> and an English and psychology and education minors. So I was, I was a classic liberal arts uh, undergrad, but there was a foreign study program at, uh, at Kalamazoo College, and it took me from Michigan to Europe, and I was in France finding it dramatic and exciting, and I resolved then to not simply stay in the United States. Uh, so after my undergraduate degree, I, uh, I took an opportunity. I had, I had studied some French. Peace Corps sent me to Francophone West Africa. So I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Senegal. Uh, Two-year assignment turned into f four years, uh, three different assignments in Senegal. Uh, my French got really good. and. Uh, I landed a job when I came back to the States on a USAID development project in Mauritania. So I went back to West Africa to use my French on a two-year contract on an international development project as an administrator. And that turned into four years. And I met my wife. And I saved some money. And so I went to business school from there. Uh, it, was, it was exciting taking the GMAT in Nouakchott, Mauritania. I got it established as a test center because it wasn't being offered within a 350-mile radius. So I went to the American Cultural Center as the only person being tested. And I had to read the instructor's directions to myself because the, the gentleman was francophone at the American Cultural Center. I took the GMAT there and went from Africa to Stanford Business School. I loved California. I loved the Bay Area. But I wanted to work in international development, so I had to come back to Washington, DC. Uh, this is where the industry is headquartered. This was, uh, this was where I was going to learn about it from the stateside perspective. I'd, I'd spent eight years at this point in West Africa. And 
realized that I could just keep circuiting around there or, or leave, come back to the States, retool, change my theater major to an MBA, and then uh, look at the management end of it. I, I lucked into a job at DAI, Development Alternatives, Inc., well-known today. In 1985, it was doing $8 million a year in, in services. It was a small company. I believe that in 1985, I was the first person who started to wear a necktie in the offices of DAI. So that's my personal little claim to fame there. DAI was good for me. It was growing, and I was growing. And it, it offered me opportunities to get a series of overseas assignments. Uh, working in the Washington end, you sort of help on the new business pipeline. And then, then I saw a program and, and, and went and moved. Uh, I, went, I got to go to Asia, finally, after eight years in West Africa. So I had a, a project you said funded in Indonesia, and that was fabulous. I came back to the States, and I got another job in the Caribbean, uh, moved my young family to Barbados, spent a couple of years on, a, on an investment project there. Uh, felt like the world was my oyster, just kept, just kept growing. Each time I'd come back to Washington, D.C. and have to reinvent myself because DAI was growing so fast. If you, if you stepped out of, the, out of the stream for a couple of years, you came back and it was reorganized and twice as big and you had to recreate your value and, and identify a position. At some point right around then, I had passed the Foreign Service exam and had to make a decision about whether or not to take security in, in the big organization or just keep hustling and, and trusting. At the time, I, f I felt like I was 28 years old now, and that was pretty old. And so I thought, OK, I'm just going to keep, keep rolling the dice and, and count, on, count on good work and good assignments. Well, DAI has since grown, as you know. It, it's, it's one of the, the Hertz or Avis in our, our business today. Um, I spent 15 years with DAI and then uh, was kind of hired away by Deloitte Emerging Markets Group, uh, a little known branch of, of the Deloitte Global Monster, uh, which in fact started to become successful and drew the attention of the Global Monster, resulting in it being closed because it was, it was too risky. Um, Deloitte has subsequently seen the error of its ways and recreated emerging markets groups, so it, it, it exists again today. Uh, that kind of sent me over to ACDI VOCA, where I landed about eight years ago. It's an interesting circuit, and there's a lesson there, going from Peace Corps nonprofit to 20 years in the for-profit consulting business, and then finding my happy home at a, at a nonprofit like ACDI VOCA that acts a lot like a consulting firm. Um, so in my, in my tenure at ACDI VOCA, I've kind of followed the arc from agribusiness. As, as Joanna said, I, I was in these agriculture programs, and then agriculture got to be a really bad word in the development set, and the funding was way back. I remember having a discussion with USAID about 30 years ago trying to justify working with small agricultural businesses and farmers under an enterprise development umbrella and being told that no, agriculture was not enterprise. Farming was not business and we couldn't justify it. So we, we failed to make the argument and agriculture funding for food 
got very thin for about 10 years, and then it started to come back, and now, as, as Joanna points out, global food security seems to have taken on with the additional word security uh, an acceptable category of development. It's, it's, uh, it's based in economics. If you look at the countries where we are all working and aiming, three-quarters of the GDP, three-quarters of the employment, these are agricultural economies. You can't ignore agriculture and expect to have, to have development there. So it's, it's back in good graces, and that kind of followed the arc of my career from agribusiness then into strategy for organizations. And uh, in, in January of this year, I got my, my new assignment, which was to lead our communications and outreach team, which brings me all the way back to that theater arts undergraduate degree and everything that came after it. You just don't know. It's serendipity. I think you set yourself up and go forward and find, uh, find what works. So historically, the, the development emphasis was on agriculture and better varieties of crops and helping producers produce more. And there was a, a significant lack of market-driven economic development. It was perceived... In, in a way simplistic fashion that people needed more food, help the farmers grow more food. Uh, it was about technology adoption, but primarily around varieties that would be more productive. The Green Revolution in India uh, happened with hybrid seeds and fertilizers and eight times the productivity on a, on a hectare of, of food-producing land. Um, increasingly now, it's, it's referred to as food security or agribusiness to to incorporate that understanding that markets drive it. Markets dictate what is sustainably possible for those rural communities and for those rural economies. It's increasingly about using the appropriate inputs, uh, post-harvest handling, storage improvements, market linkages, the intermediaries who sort and grade and package, and the markets and the distribution networks, whether it's retail or wholesale, for those food products. When you, when you take it from the market and bring it back to who's producing it and make those linkages connect, it's, it's value chain, market systems, agriculture. It's no longer just production agriculture, and that's a good thing. Um, there was a high-value horticulture boom where countries like Kenya uh, suddenly had a very successful period of promoting high-value horticulture exports and working on the pre-pack and the quality packaging for Western European uh, market multiples. And then for a certain period of time, all the countries in Sub-Saharan Africa wanted to do high-value horticulture exports. Well, it just doesn't, it doesn't work for everybody. It's, it's about what the markets want. Um, there is a new emphasis, and it's a good one, on connecting food to consumers and evolving consumer tastes. The, uh, the demographics, and, and I really, I, I talk primarily about Sub-Saharan Africa, but it's also South Asia. There's a fabulous map on the internet of global malnutrition, and it shows the, the, the world map in proportion to how high malnourishment is in the country. The more the malnourishment, the skinnier the country on the map, or the fatter the country if it's high in malnourishment. It's a dramatic illustration that Malnourishment today is largely centered in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. So it's no surprise that the, 
the donor programs, the funding, the NGOs, the projects are increasingly in those areas. It's where the foundations are focused. It's where the multilateral donors are focused. Uh, I talked about the business of agriculture. Um, increasingly, where, where I found myself attracted was the institutional strengthening. I believe that to make an economic uh, society function, you have to have institutions, whether the civil society institutions, government ministries that function, or civil society organizations that help society help itself. Um, so I was attracted to making farmers work in slightly more cohesive units so that they could present an efficient and effective market interface. They're more attractive as farmers if they work together. If someone with a cell phone uh, calls the traders and represents 100 or 2,000 farmers and can talk about having 10 tons of clean product, then you're talking marketplace. Then you're talking, you'll get your inputs and you'll get the right inputs and you'll get them cheaply and you'll get them delivered on time. Um, there's a, there's a, a number of, I'm going to tell you three numbers today. If nothing else, I want you to take away from today three numbers. The first number is right now, and that's 80-20. When I was early in my career, 80% of the funding, 80% of the finance, 80% of the FDI and domestic investment in these countries came from development assistance. The USAID uh, mission director could call up the Minister of Agriculture and have him over to his office and read him the Riot Act because development assistance was king. Private investment was the 20%. That ratio has flipped. Today, 80% is private investment. It's foreign direct investment, it's domestic investment. Development assistance, although it flatlined for a long time and has since increased, represents now only 20% of the finance coming into these economies. So right there, that tells you a couple of things. It tells you that the private sector and the private businesses are king. They're the folks that get the minister's calls. And it tells you that development assistance by its very nature has to be evolved, has to change, has to acknowledge that difference, has to seek to be catalytic, has to really try and work increasingly on public-private partnerships. It has to work with the Chevrons and BPs of the world to see that its funding is leveraged with other financing, whether it's foreign direct investment or domestic investment, which shouldn't be forgotten. So the first number I want you to remember from today is 80-20. Food security is also about the safety net. We see societies in West Africa being hit with an Ebola crisis. That becomes a civil society crisis. The institutions that exist there will keep the countries moving forward will lead us, inshallah, to a, to a recovery. It'll be an economic recovery based on food safety net, on social stability, and on civil society functioning well. Uh, that's what is the foundation for good economic development. I talked about uh, global malnourishment. We have currently something like 900 million, call it a billion, a billion people in the world who are in need of food security, who are undernourished. A billion out of six is a relatively better number than it was 10 years ago. We're actually winning this team that, that we're all on. There are, there are targets of disadvantaged. Logistics become the problem. It's not as though the world doesn't produce enough food. It's that there's not enough food produced where it's needed. 
and it costs a lot to move it from where there's a surplus to where it's needed. And the infrastructure and the logistics and the governance prevents that from happening right now. But the easy, low-hanging fruit, and this is the second number I want you to write down, this is 30%. 30% is the rough ballpark estimate of post-harvest losses in these developing countries. So we talk about how hard it is to get enough food. This is food that is produced. They get enough water, they get the right seed, they, they cultivate, they harvest it, and then 30% is lost. It's damp, it's not protected, the rats get it, the birds get it, the insects get it, the fungus gets it. It's lost before someone can eat it. In our first world, we throw away 30% of our food. So the 30% figure works for first world, it works for developing world, and I think that the low-hanging fruit is to cut post-harvest loss. If you reduce the post-harvest loss by half, you get a 15% bump right there, right easy. Just don't let it rain on it. Just keep it away from the bugs. Just dry it sufficiently so that the fungus doesn't get it. Uh, Experts predict that by 2050, with population growth and changing diets, and the changing diets means the demographics is driving the population into urban areas increasingly, and the, call it middle income, the increase in income levels, people are consuming more protein, more meat. Meat's a really inefficient multiplier up from cereal. People go from eating cereal to eating meat. It means that we're going to, we're going to need a 70 to to 100% increase in the amount of food produced to feed the population in the year 2050. The demographics that are driving urban growth are also producing a youth bulge. There's an enormous percentage of the population in these developing countries where we're working that's between the ages of 18 and 30. It's a, it's a big bulge. It's like the baby boomers, but this is global boom. Um, that has to be acknowledged. You have to, you have to do your solutions around that. That's a condition. Uh, another condition is the aging farmer. Just like in the US, our, our average farmer age is 55 or something like that. The same thing's happening in Senegal or in Kenya or in Pakistan, aging farmer. Not a surprise, if you think of yourselves growing up in a village there, you want to leave the village. You don't want to be poking a pointed stick in the ground and dropping a few seeds in and waiting for the rain. Youth wants, wants faster, wants better. Uh, cell phones have come, so the youth are leaving the farms. Um, with this acceleration of youth and aging farmer and global trade, there's a, there's a flashing amber light global alert that says there's a, there's a crisis here. The farmers are getting older. The youth aren't going into farming. The food need is rising. Uh, pretty soon, with global trade happening, there will be swatches where it's not economically feasible to produce your own food because it's produced in volumes more cheaply someplace else. So the market's going to work that and settle it. I want to give you your third number. That's a thousand, one thousand. It's a thousand days from the moment of conception until a child reaches their second birthday. This thousand day period is critical 
for the nourishment aspect of this individual. 85% of your brain power for your lifetime develops during this critical thousand day period. So if you are malnourished and you're stunted, that's an indication that your mental development is gonna be stunted for life. So imagine the enormous economic cost on a country of a bunch of malnourished infants today. The country's economy is gonna pay for that for 50 years. It's, uh, it shines a light on that critical problem of infant maternal nourishment. So in my career, I, I thought, well, gee, we've got to educate those pregnant women to understand they have to nourish their babies in utero and, and breastfeed and feed them until they're two years old to get through this crisis period. And then I said, well, wait a minute. What we really need to do is we need to educate the girls before they get pregnant, and they should know this. So that's, that's my pitch for a 1,000 days. Um, food security writ large is about safety nets. It's about access to food, not necessarily growing your own food. The private sector is a player. And the, the governments have a, have a tenuous role to try and administer the safety net and try and regulate food security without impeding the initiative of the private sector to solve the problems. It's a delicate balance and somebody, somebody in this room will find themselves someday certainly trying to coach governments into an appropriate role versus what kind and capacity private sector do they have there working with them. Um, health and nutrition meets agriculture. Uh, PEPFAR came and ran with health, but there was a big silo. Health and nutrition wasn't agriculture. And agriculture ran in a separate silo and Feed the Future, bless their hearts, tried to break down that silo. Five years later, we're still trying to break down that silo because we learned that well, gee, the reporting was different, the indicators were different, entire organizations geared up toward one or the other and then found it difficult to break down the silos. So we're making progress. Uh, partnerships, public and private. So I wanna talk about careers in development. Who here is looking for a job? Raise your hand. All right. Anybody who has a job, you should also be looking for a job. Thank you. Um, a show of hands, how many people in this room have or are on the verge of having a master's degree? Okay, that's pretty good. How many people in this room are relatively fluent in a language other than English? Good also. How many people in this room have professional overseas working experience? Good, pretty good. Wow. It's an all-star team, we're in Washington DC, right? Um, <laughs> These are pretty much the criteria for the organizations that you're trying to work for or are already working for in order to read your resume. Otherwise, it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, in the category of skills, I think that the industry is right now looking for analysis, the capacity to analyze data. It's looking for communication skills, multicultural experiences, the ability to work in foreign countries, and the ability to work in teams. If there's one thing I've learned in this independent lifetime of bouncing around, it's, it's that your, 
Your career experiences will follow you. Don't make enemies early because sure enough, you will run into them again. It's a, it's a small world. Uh, there are some attributes that I look for. Uh, people coming out of school trying to get in. I look for a technical focus. I look for a geographic focus. Do you know sub, uh, subcontinent uh, of Asia? Do you know West Africa as a region? Uh, technical skills around food security, but also there's a whole big movement around youth to help deal with this uh, demographic of youth bubble. Gender integration, as much as we've been working it for the last 10 years, finally, it's still in its infancy. It's still understanding how to integrate. Um, energy, the, the big US investment move now into Sub-Saharan Africa is around energy, energy generation. Um, ICT, the whole tech comes to meet food security in developing world. The, the cell phone is one of those leapfrog technologies where, where there, even where there is no electricity, there is cell phone coverage in lots of sub-Saharan Africa. One of the cutest things I saw was well beyond the power grid in western Kenya, almost to the Ugandan border, I saw a little homemade uh, haircut place. And it had the classic, you know, hand-painted designs of people with haircuts. And on the side, it said, cell phones charged. They had a car battery. You could charge your cell phone and get your hair cut. And whenever that car battery ran low, they put it back in the truck and drove it around the village. <laughs> there was no electricity, but you could get your cell phone charged. Um, natural resource management, climate change is hot. Training, the ability to impart skills, it's a, it's a technical expertise. You can, you can know that. That can be a specialty. Finance. Finance and business with the big coming tidal wave of private sector-led economic development. The ability to, to interface between foundations and donors and private businesses becomes a key, a key skill. Um, flexibility, sure. I think you have to be ready to do short-term work. You have to be ready to do an internship. You have to be ready to go on a long-term overseas assignment. Uh, because there's so much serendipity in the industry, when you're applying for a job, you just have to be flexible and see what, see what possibilities there are. I tell people, I want to see a multi-page CV. All of my schools said a two-pager. Got to get down to two pages. One page, two pages. I'll accept a four-page CV. We sell people's time by the hour. We need to know every experience that you've had that's germane. It's going to show up on a, on a document search. If you traveled to Korea, if you've been to Pakistan, I need to know that from your CV. So don't cut it short. I, I advise people uh, to, do, to do what I did. It is kind of, I was looking for adventure. I tell you to follow your passion. Whatever grips you and excites you and gets your, gets your juice flowing, that's what you should pursue, but you should be opportunistic. And if along the way you see something that's bright and offers an alternative, uh, don't be hesitant about taking it if it feels okay, because it opens up every step that you take in your career, opens up new options and avenues that you hadn't realized before. So follow your passion, but be opportunistic. I love the Peace Corps. I still advocate for the Peace Corps. I think that the, the undergraduates in the room 
need to get that overseas experience working. Peace Corps does that. It takes care of you a little bit, and you can work it up. You can test the international development industry. I didn't know about the international development industry until I was in the Peace Corps. Um, I mentioned internships. That's a good thing. I'll also mention nonprofits. When I was doing my job search, I kind of sorted the industry into quadrants. And I said, well, you've got for-profits over here that are domestic and international, and you've got not-for-profits that are domestic and international. I liked international. The non-profits pay a little bit less than the for-profits. It's a little bit easier to get in the door, I think. They need talent more because they're trying to push program. So the management opportunities are perhaps greater and easier. And the, the good news that comes with this is that there's a lot of flexibility in the industry to go back and forth from nonprofits to for-profits. You build your resume a step at a time. It doesn't work against you that you've been for a nonprofit among the for-profits. They value your experience. Um, last couple of things. Find your passion, take the opportunities. At Just one little plug, at AC Davoca, we have a thing called the Service Learning Corps, which is a relatively new program. It's for graduate students or recent graduate students uh, to get volunteer assignments up to six months long embedded on an overseas program. It's a great resume builder. Your expenses are paid, airfare, living expenses, and you get professional work experience on a program. It's called the Service Learning Corps. There's an international opportunities portal on the ACD Avoca website. That's my only commercial. So your numbers to remember, 80-20, 30%, and 1,000 days. Remember those three things. We'll stop there and take some questions. Well, thank you. That was just great. I wonder, um, do you want to take one question at a time, or should we bundle two or three together? Ah, fly. Either. Let's, let's take, let's a, let's, couple, couple let's take a couple at a time because sure. we got about 15 minutes and okay. I know we're going to have a lot of questions. So who's going to start? Okay, go ahead. Okay, question, yep. about, question seeds about seeds and right here. And a second question. Oh, oh so second question, involved. sorry. As an, uh, uh, Gilbert Mundela, I'm from DRC. As an African and Congolese, one of the key issues that uh, the young lady mentioned is uh, seed. And uh, we are concerned about the, uh, the expansion of uh, NGOs. Uh, I mean, um, uh, GMO. And uh, GMOs, we don't have the capacity to control them and to really master uh, their uh, things, their uh, effect yeah. on our people. And uh, the promotion of that is becoming so aggressive that uh, we are overwhelmed by that. The second thing is this. We have uh, a high rate of unemployment, and the youth are not seeing agriculture as a possibility right. to get something. Can you help us focus on that and design some programs that will take the youngster to, to go back to that? Even in Europe today, I see in Switzerland, they are not uh, having farmers to take uh, right. care of the productions. So we have land, we have everything. We need to get that moving. 
Okay, seeds, multinationals, GMOs, and aging farmers. Start with those. Um, yes, yeah, seeds. The, the seed is critical, and it ties in the, the, the there are drought-resistant seeds, for example, that allow a farmer under increasingly harsh environmental conditions to get a crop in. If you can grow sorghum in 90 days instead of 120 days, and your rainy season is getting shorter and shorter, it's critical that you get those seeds. You get a crop or you get no crop. And in, uh, in the Sahel in West Africa, you have one rainy season in, in some of those countries. You get a crop. That's what your family lives on for the rest of the year, and you hope that you have some left at the end to plant for next rainy season. That's how it works. Um, I think drought-resistant seeds, I think better seeds. There, there are seed research institutes, uh, CGIAR associated, the, uh, the sorghum and millet being, being studied and developed in West Africa is appropriate for West Africa. I think there are, there are challenges to, to multiply seed and distribute it. Um, NGOs versus the private sector, I, I just have to do my little two-minute commercial for ACDI Boca, which is the nonprofit that means business. We embrace the private sector. We think that the private sector is a part of the solution. Not all NGOs are alike. Um, DRC, one of my favorite countries. I've, I've, I've been there and I've been, I've been to Bukavu, not just Kinshasa. I think that GMOs offer an enormous potential solution for food security, but as the first world promotes them, along with that promotion comes a responsibility for the first world to coach up the recipient country to be able to administer GMOs, to regulate, to test, to verify, to keep separate. I don't think that it's responsible of the first world to simply push out good seed. If it's GMO seed, the country has to have an infrastructure and a capacity to manage it, to channel it, to regulate it, and to control it. Otherwise, it's, it's, it'll cause problems. The, uh, the aging farmer is, is a problem. The, the youth integration is partially a solution. What I like to, to, to say is you've got to come up with agriculture solutions that are around business. Youth are attracted to businesses around agriculture. They don't want to do the pointed stick in the ground, but they do want to buy and sell product. They do want to maybe collect and, and upgrade and package and retail. They do want to have a business with a backpack sprayer, perhaps, that goes around and sells services. They do want to work together as a group and do a couple of businesses. They're really good with telecommunications and sometimes provide the best sharpest marketing arm for a producer group. If you let the youth get in charge of the, the wholesaling, retailing business end, they're more attracted to it. Um, there, are, there are youth exceptional who grow up and, and farm like their parents before them, and they inherit their piece of the family farm, and it's too small because we're getting smaller and smaller inherited fields. Um, they're the bright ones, though, who, who have gone to school a little bit, who understand the principles of aggregation and can find that maybe 10 of their neighbors can work together and make a business of it. I think that you've got to not 
cross off youth from agriculture. I think you've got to attract them to the business end of agriculture to, uh, to involve them in agriculture solutions. All right, a few more questions. Okay, next set. Um, so I have a really interesting question, at least I think it's an interesting question, about political risk uh, and looking at food security. So uh, for instance, the United States, we're not building a pipeline uh, throughout the, the Midwest, and that's crowding out train routes that are impacting farmers throughout the Midwest and their ability to get their agricultural product onto a train. In Brazil, you don't have roads infrastructure set up in the proper way, so you have these huge backups with trucks trying to get to ports. Uh, in the Ukraine, big uh, potential for risk there in the Ukraine, a big producer. Uh, and in Argentina, you have things like the potential for uh, default uh, and what that might do to impact farmers. So I was kind of interested what your thoughts were. Or you could even add Ebola and the cocoa fields. We don't necessarily connect the two, but obviously it impacted cocoa farmers. So I was kind of wondering what your thoughts were on the political risk aspect when you get to the governance question. All right. Um, go ahead. Hi, Paul. Thanks for coming in this morning. My name is Mark. I'm a first-year master's student at uh, SICE. You mentioned um, analysis as one of the skills that we should be thinking about cultivating and when we're applying yeah. for jobs. A lot of um, people kind of create a dichotomy between project management and uh, more technical analysis or quantitative analytical skills. And, I mean, what's your opinion on that? And do you think there should be a focus for students in the room? Okay. Yeah. And let's take a um, woman in the red jacket. Then we'll... Hi, I'm Virginia Marie. I was wondering how we as development professionals can push back against U.S. food aid, um, particularly the instances where we are flooding local economies and damaging that agricultural economy. All right. Okay. Let's go with that. Good. Um, political risk. Political risk and food security, it's, it's really complicated. It's, it's an entire field of study, and, and I'm, I'm only an, an amateur at it. I, I, I can relate to the infrastructure challenges. I think that infrastructure is critical to competitive agriculture. I, I applaud the current emphasis across Sub-Saharan Africa on improvements to infrastructure. If we look at the, the Millennium Challenge Corporation first round of compacts, we're kind of driven by overall, we need, we need to develop our rural sectors. They knew that there was a crisis there. The second round of compacts is largely emphasizing improvements in infrastructure, roads, ports, uh, airports, um, and I think that that's critical to the competitive nature of agriculture. Without going into the, the, the risk, I think that um, Ebola is the current topic, and, it's, and it's, it's showing the vulnerabilities of West Africa's economies because you get some shock like that. It's, it's virtually the same effect as a, as a climatic shock or a, a political revolution. It, it all falls under that giant topic of political risk. I think that the, the, the good news on political risk is that the first world is starting to be able to deal with political risk and quantify it in ways that are allowing businesses and finance to come into those economies. And that should have an impact on the governance in the countries so that they improve the governance, they improve the security, they improve the stability, they lessen the probability of nationalization because they see the benefits of the investment coming in. Um, analysis, project management, and quantitative skills. Project management is the, the, 
the meat and potatoes of the industry's entry-level positions. I think that you have to embrace that. You have to look for that. I think that analytical skills is kind of like your minor. You have to develop as a professional an area of expertise that, that you're special at. That comes hand in hand with being able to manage a program. You might manage a program in that area. Um, what type of analysis? I mean, the, the ability to manage spreadsheets and budgets and do budget projections and the ability to do monitoring and evaluation and quantitative analysis where there is no data. Start, the, start there. That's, uh, that's got enough challenge for a lifetime. Um, U.S. food aid and, wait, no, I, yeah, yep, U.S. food aid. U.S. food aid is controversial and it's diminishing today. The movement is toward cash, make cash available. The, the, the thing that I love is local or regional purchase. Uh, instead of giving food from Iowa that's a surplus, this is sort of a hangover program that USDA has done forever and continues to do and continues to do well in some places. I, I don't say pull the plug on it. I think that there have been some movements lately that simply haven't caught traction to reduce the dependency on American carriers, for example, so that the food aid isn't prohibitively expensive because it's got to go on an American carrier out of New Orleans to get to Dubai, to get to Ethiopia. At the same time, there is an analysis around any food aid program that is congressionally mandated to verify that this food aid will not interfere or harm the domestic marketplace. So if that analysis is done appropriately, it's not a bad thing. I have been in, in Ethiopia, actually, when the Europeans were beating the Americans for old-fashioned hard food aid and saying, you've got to just give cash. And the rest of the world was beating up the U.S. for it. But in the Horn of Africa that year, it was a bad year. There wasn't a surplus available to purchase with the cash. And then, like some knight on a white horse, came these American ships into port, and the, uh, the caravans of trucks brought food to Ethiopia at a critical moment in the famine and saved thousands of lives. So I'm, I'm a middleman on it, and I'm saying there's a, there's a place for food aid. Make it more competitive. And there's really a nice movement toward increasingly letting the, the professionals have a versatile toolbox, have some cash. If you can buy it locally, if you can buy it regionally, it's cheaper, you get more food, you save more lives. So it makes sense. Um, it was one of our previous USAID administrators who advocated that like a visionary about 10 years ago. And he said, let, let the people have a full toolbox. You know, reduce the percentage that must come from American surplus and must be monetized. But you don't have to cross it off. Just make it more efficient. Let it come more cheaply. Let it come from Ukraine if they have a bumper crop or Argentina, who's, where the food is to where the food's needed. Okay? Well, I think you see why I felt that it, we're so fortunate to have Paul with us to really bridge the 20 years ago approach to ag and food security to today, where there's been a lot of change, but still some important consistent principles. Um, I think we have to stop there because it's 10 o'clock. I don't know. Do you have time to stick around for, sure, I'll stick for a little bit? For a little bit. I, don't, um, it, I know that a number of you will probably want to talk to Paul individually. 
we at some point will have to pull him because we're going to do a little podcast so that we can post that online and p other people can hear it. But what a great group of, um, of development professionals. We're looking yes. forward to tracking your careers and wish you all the best of luck. And thank you so much, Paul, for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure.